Have you ever lost something that was right in front of you? Um, you know, it, it, it wasn't really lost. You just couldn't see it. Um, I, I have... Uh, you, you've seen this before. Um, uh, I, I keep asking my daughter to make it more and more visible because it'll be sitting on the, on the couch next to me and I won't be able to find it. So I asked her to decorate it so I could find it better. Um, uh, you've probably had that experience. Something is right there in front of you um, and you can't see it. Um, when I was when I was a software developer, there was this phenomenon. I would I would have a bug assigned to me. Um, I didn't write code with bugs, but people found it anyway. Um, and so so they would say, Luke, you need to track down the bug in your code. And so I would be looking at the code, and I would spend the whole day staring at staring at my code, trying to figure out what was wrong with it. I'd run diagnostics, I'd run tests, um, I'd put in debugging statements. I'd do everything I could. And I could not find the bug. And finally, you know, time's getting on. I'm wasting a day. And so I would go talk to a colleague and I'd say, hey, can you help me find this bug in my code? Because I want to show you what I've done and maybe you can help me see what, maybe there's some new path I could try to figure out how to find this. And, and they would come into my cube and I'd say, okay, now you see, if the bug was in my code, it would be right there. Never mind. Um, and, and I would send them away. And this happened over and over again. And in fact, it's a pretty common phenomenon. Uh, there's a there's a movement in the software development business uh, that th- that is based on the idea that it's not that bugs are hard to find, it's that programmers are blind, that that programmers can't see what's right in front of them, and so uh, there's actually something called uh, the open source software movement, which which has the idea that that um, uh, given enough eyeballs, all bugs are shallow. That basically, if people could just look at it with fresh eyes, they'd be able to see the problem. So. Um, if you've got software that always works, then don't worry about this. But if you ever have bugs in your software, maybe you should be looking for, for open source software. Um, but I will tell you, it's not just programmers who are blind. Um, even people who get paid, people whose job is to observe things, people who are supposed to look at the world and figure out what's, what is in front of them, sometimes just get it wrong. In 1923, Theophilus uh, Painter uh, published for the first time, a statement that said how many chromosomes are in the human organism. And he said there were 48 chromosomes in the human organism. And he published pictures, and it was in reference books, it was in all the scientific literature. For 33 years, human beings had 48 chromosomes. And then in 1956, uh, somebody uh, counted them again and said, hey, there's 46 chromosomes. And it turns out that everybody had been seeing something that wasn't there. They had been looking at the same the same data, and they saw a different number. So uh, uh, the books all got changed, and now for the last uh, 50, 60 years, uh, people have had 46 chromosomes, and that's the number you'll find today. Uh, people are blind. People can't see what's right in front of them. This is this is a phenomenon that scientists and programmers and pretty much everybody has experienced. And And the sad truth is, it's not limited just to things like glasses and chromosomes and lines of code in your software. It is, it is a part of the human condition. And in particular, it's a part of our life as people of faith. We often miss things that are right in front of us. And I suspect God often is looking at us and saying, how can you miss what is staring you right in the face? Um, so, uh, so, uh, that's what we're going to talk to, talk about today. Jesus came, as we saw. We, we've been in this. We've been in this um, uh, chapter. Uh, what came to be a chapter. Matthew wrote his his biography of Jesus, and uh, about twelve hundred years later, 
about 800 years ago, they added the chapter divisions, uh, but the part that is now called chapter 9 of Matthew, it begins with teaching, because Matthew is concerned that everybody understand what Jesus came to talk about. For Matthew, the teaching of Jesus is much more important than the miracles. But then he's concluding this chapter, this section of his biography, with these stories about miracles. So last week we saw two two miracle stories, and today we're going to look at two more. And we'll finish up the the, the chapter next week. But in in this uh, in this week's uh, lesson, as with last week's lesson, we see uh, these two miracles, and uh, the reason that Jesus did miracles is not that the world uh, needed to change somehow. It's not that the world needed more miracles. Um, miracles aren't because there's something broken in the physical world and the way things work that that Jesus had to come and fix. Uh, when Jesus came and changed uh, water into wine in the wedding at Canaan. It wasn't because there was anything wrong with the way grapes do it. Uh, God is perfectly happy with the way grapes ferment and become become uh, wine. Uh, so when Jesus did it, it wasn't he was inaugurating a new way of, of making wine in the world. It was to do a specific thing. When Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead, it's not that God has a desire that that in 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 the world as God wishes it were, that dead people would come back to life, or at least not the way we normally think about it. The problem is not that Lazarus uh, was dead and didn't come back to life. The real problem from God's perspective is that people uh, die in the first place. And in fact, what we see in Scripture, what we see in, in the, the, the book of Revelation, for example, is that in the world to come, in the resurrection, in the new heaven and the new earth, there will be no more dying. So the problem is not that people who are dead should come back to life. Um, the problem is that people shouldn't die in the first place. Now, there is a secondary thing. There's been thousands of years of people dying, so Jesus has to work that out too. But ultimately, the problem is not dead people coming back. It's people dying in the first place. So miracles uh, serve a purpose, but it's not... It's not the obvious purpose. It's not that there's anything wrong with the way that, that grapes become wine. It's not that dead people shouldn't stay dead. The problem that miracles uh, address, the, the, the reason for miracles, is to demonstrate something about God, specifically to demonstrate God's power and his authority, that, uh, uh, that God has the power and the authority to, ch- to change things in the world, and that God has the willingness. So it's about the, the power of God, but also the grace of God. So Jesus does these miracles to show that, that God has power and grace. When Jesus changes the water into wine in the, the famous story about the wedding in Cana, it's to show that he has, he has God's authority. God's power is working in him, and he is able to change water into wine. But it also shows that God is gracious, that there's this anonymous couple, their wedding is, is going to be ruined because they ran out of wine too soon, and everyone's going to look down on them for the rest of their lives, and God is gracious. So Jesus intervenes to, to solve the problem, the social problem that they're about to encounter. God has power and God is grace. So the lesson that the miracle shows is to demonstrate something about God. Demonstration, uh, the very idea of demonstrating is showing. Demonstrating is to make something that wasn't clear, clear. To make something that wasn't visible, visible. And that's what we're going to see in today's lesson. It's about, it's about visibility. It's about seeing things. And, and really both of these stories are about seeing. The first one is obvious. The first one is about, uh, the blind man, um, uh, the blind men, excuse me, who, uh, follow Jesus, um, shouting, uh, uh, after him. Um, and, and obviously that's going to be about seeing. So 
Let's take a look at that. In verse 27, it says, Jesus went on from there. Two blind men followed him, crying loudly, Have mercy on us, son of David. I've been looking at this all week, and I've been thinking to myself, this is a strange thing, that Jesus wouldn't stop on the way. Uh, Imagine it. Jesus is going from here to there. There's a couple of blind men who hear the commotion as Jesus goes by, and they start calling out after him, Hey, Jesus, help us. And he goes on his way. He stops for a lot of people. He doesn't stop for them. And I I don't know why. And it says they followed him. I mean, think what a hard thing that was for them to follow him. So, you know, they're asking around, did Jesus come this way? And, And eventually they figure out where Jesus has gone. And Jesus is in a house now and they corner him in the house. So you can't get away from us now, Jesus. And uh, Jesus says to them, do you believe that I am able to, to do this? Um, and they say, yes, Lord. And so he touches their eyes and says, according to your faith, let it be done to you. Now, uh, this, this phrase, according to your faith, uh, there's all kinds of opportunity for people to misunderstand what's going on there. Uh, in the bulletin, I've got some questions. You can, you can kind of uh, do some homework if that's an intriguing idea for you. What does that mean? So there's a couple of questions that may help you unpack that a little bit. But but Jesus says, since you believe that, since you believe I can change, I can change your life, um, let it be done to you. And he touches their eyes, and their eyes are opened. Now, what's interesting to me is if you think that that means you've got to have some kind of great faith to for Jesus to work miracles with you, um, that's not what it means because we see that they don't have great faith. They believe Jesus can do things, but that's about all they believe. Jesus sternly warns them. It says sternly. This word sternly is about the strongest word we ever see applied to Jesus. Uh, Jesus gives them a very, very stiff lecture telling them, don't let anyone know about this. In fact, there's kind of a play on words. He says, see to it. The first thing he tells the blind people is he says, see to it that no one... um, no one finds out about this. And of course they go out and they start telling everybody about it. So the report spreads. So they have some faith. They believe Jesus can do some stuff, but they don't, they don't think he's important enough that they have to obey him, that they have to do what he says. So they've got some faith, but not a whole lot. But I think that this first story is really just a setup for the second story. The second story, as I said, I believe is actually about seeing. And the reason is because Matthew just kind of just dashes off an account of the miracle. He says he says that um, when they'd gone away, a demoniac who was mute was brought to him. What he's saying here is not everyone who can't speak has a demon, but in this case, someone who did have a demon couldn't speak. So a demoniac who was mute was brought to him. And then the next verse, and when the demon had been cast out, he doesn't even tell us Jesus did it, much less how Jesus did it. He just says, and when the demon was cast out, the one who had been mute spoke. And the reason I think he's so sloppy in telling us what happened here is because Matthew really doesn't care about this miracle. For him, the important thing in this story is not that this... I mean, it was important to the, the man with the demon, sure. But it's not important to Matthew. To Matthew, what's important about this story is the reaction of the crowd and the reaction of the Pharisees. What happens when people see this miracle... And what we see is there's two reactions. The crowd is amazed. The crowd says, never has anything like this been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees say, eh, yeah, 
By the ruler of demons, he casts out the demons. Uh, there's two reactions. One is maybe even over the top. Uh, you know, there's there's miracles in the Old Testament. Uh, when, when you say never has anything like this been seen in Israel, I mean, there's the parting of the Red Sea, right? I don't know how you how you compare this to the Red Sea. So uh, maybe they're maybe overstating the case, or maybe maybe this is the the effect that seeing Jesus day after day work miracle after miracle collectively. So you know what? Uh, it's not as dramatic as the Red Sea, but but it keeps going and going and going, and I've become convinced that maybe really never never has anything like this been seen in Israel. So either they're they're just kind of struck with, wow, that's pretty amazing, or they're saying, you know, really this is pretty amazing. It's even more amazing than the the great miracles we've 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 heard about in in our scriptures. So one way or the other, the crowd looks at what Jesus is doing and they say, this is this is pretty impressive, but. The Pharisees look at Jesus and says, eh, there's probably an explanation. There's probably some explanation um, because because what it comes down to is, what am I going to believe? Am I going to believe my theology or my lying eyes? That's what the Pharisees are basically saying. And they, they say, I have an understanding of who God is. And Jesus shows up and he starts demonstrating a different God than the one I was looking for. And I'm going to believe my theology instead of my lying eyes. So Jesus says, you know, there's a God who knows who you are. He knows that you're a tax collector and a sinner. And he still wants to have dinner at your house. And they say, well, that's the wrong kind of people for God to hang out with. He, he, Jesus says, you know, there's a God who is willing to be interrupted even though you don't have any kind of claim, you're a low-status person, you don't have any claim on him, and you've got a hopeless problem. Jesus says, that's what God's like. And the Pharisees say, you know what, my theology isn't about that kind of God. So Jesus, you're showing me these things, but the truth of the matter is, my theology is more important to me than the evidence of my lying eyes. So the crowd sees it, and the Pharisee they don't see it. Jesus comments elsewhere on this stubborn refusal of the Pharisees to see what's in front of them. He says, ultimately, there are none so blind as those who cannot, uh, who, who will not see. He says, there are none so blind as those who will not see. And that brings us to the song we sang earlier. You, you've heard it before. I, uh, my guess is most of you have heard Amazing Grace at one point or another. Um, it's written by John Newton. And uh, many of you know the story of John Newton. He was a slave trader who uh, became... Is, uh, there, there he is. Um, in the 1700s, um, John Newton was a slave trader. And uh, over the course of his career, he he realized that, that uh, God would save even a wretch like him, that uh, God God would save even someone like John Newton. And he wrote um, he wrote that song. Uh, I'm going to read something from, from a book uh, that, that has been just uh, an absolutely awesome book. Um, this book here, Unapologetic by Francis Bufford Spufford. Um, he's a British novelist, and uh, I'll read just one ver- blurb on the back. It says, The most exhilarating read of the year. His case for faith is rude, intelligent and convincing and uh, let me emphasize the root it is a uh, um, maybe nc17 but it's certainly r 
Um, you don't want your kids reading this. Um, but um, but it's a it's an absolutely fascinating book, and it is like he says, it's unapologetic. Why, despite everything, Christianity can still make surprising emotional sense. And I want to read what he has to say about about John Newton here. He says, he says, um, "Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me." And he says, he says, that wretch is actually a very polite word for what John Newton, the 18th century author of Amazing Grace, was. John Newton was a slave trader. He made his living transporting cargoes of kidnapped human beings in conditions of great squalor and suffering to places where they and their children and their children's children would be treated all their lives as objects to be bought and sold and brutalized. Some of John Newton's contemporaries may have thought that his profession was only a bit unrespectable. We, on the other hand, recognize that he was participating in one of the world's great crimes, comparable to the Holocaust. Wretch. John Newton was a horror. But at least he came to know it. At least he made a journey from comfortable acquiescence and horror to an accurate and therefore horrified sense of himself. At least he learned something was wrong. An amazing grace is a description of the process by which he began to awaken. The wrinkle is, he wrote it before he gave up slaving. John Newton wrote that poem in 1748. He would go on, um, uh, he would go on, uh, captaining sh- sailing ships, uh, slaving ships for several more years and investing in slave trade for years after that. And it wasn't until 40 years after his conversion to Christianity that he finally published a pamphlet uh, um, uh, confessing his sin and, and calling on the abolition of the slave trade. It was 40 years process from being a slave trader to being uh, someone who could campaign against it. What he's complaining about, when he says, I was a wretch, he says, he says I was a drunk. I swore. I was licentious. Those are the things that he was concerned about. But God used those concerns of his to open his eyes to what a wretch he is. And that is what miracles do. See, Jesus didn't come to change the way that wine is made. Jesus came to open blind eyes. People who did not know what they were doing, who do not know what wretches they are, and who do not know how much God loves them. Jesus came so that we could see ourselves clearly and so that we could see that there's a God who sees us equally clearly, who knows every fault, every flaw, who knows everything that has ever been done to us, who knows everything we've done to other people, who sees us with perfect clarity, who knows everything that's wrong, and who still loves us. A God who not only loves us, but wants to have a relationship with us. A God who wants us to live forever so that he can spend eternity with us. Jesus came to open our eyes to our own wretched condition and to a knowledge of the God who loves us, who is desperate to jump into our lives and begin fixing the things that are broken and healing the things that hurt. Jesus came to open blind eyes. Amazing grace. 
How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Amen.